Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 6th, 2012. Now, even though it's a short week, I have to do a light edition this week as well. So we're going to be continuing with our lecture series on the Epistle to the Church at Colossae. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, once a week, we do what I call a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's not that the topic is light, it's that it's a singular topic, and I usually hand the microphone over to somebody who knows what they're talking about. They're experts in a particular field, or they've done a, a fantastic lecture series on a particular topic. And the goal here is is that um, discernment is not just about identifying um, false teaching. Uh, discernment, the, in fact, the greater part of discernment is knowing the truth and knowing the original. By knowing the original very well, what happens is, is that when somebody twists God's word and tries to pass off counterfeit teaching, you're able to identify it and dispose of it properly. That's the idea. And so what we've been doing uh, for the series that we're working our way through right now is we've been listening to a series of lectures by uh, the Reverend Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, and uh, working through a series of lectures that he recently gave uh, teaching on uh, the the epistle uh, to the church at Colossae, otherwise known as Colossians. And so it's a fantastic lecture series, and we're just going to dive right into it. Here's the next installment in the series. Here we go. Uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. 
Okay. Um, I mentioned that he talks uh, that Paul talks about wisdom six times in this letter, and so that's uh, that's rather significant that that comes up, and so we're going to pay a little bit of attention to it. Um, for Paul, the spiritual wisdom that he's talking about is going to be significant because there are others who are claiming to give out another wisdom. Um, in other words, true wisdom is under attack. The heretics in Colossae are going to be offering their own version of, wi- of wisdom, and the Colossians are going to need the wisdom, who is Christ, um, to get them through all of the false claims and all of the false teachers and to keep them faithful to, to, to our Lord. Just a little quick glance at that word wisdom. If we uh, went back into the Old Testament, uh, Job who, uh, which is perhaps the oldest of the uh, Old Testament books, tells us that wisdom belongs to God. From Job 28, uh, Job says, from, from, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? God understands the way to it. He knows, and, and he knows its place. From Job 28, 20, and 23. Um, probably the most famous verse about wisdom, at least in the Old Testament, would probably be that Proverbs, Proverbs 1, verse 7 verse. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and then if we follow through Proverbs a little bit, we would see n- uh, that not only is the fear of the Lord be- the beginning of wisdom, that our world works because God created it with wisdom. Proverbs, uh, Solomon writes, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down dew. So the world works because God created it with wisdom. But to come to true wisdom, uh, there's even more than that. Paul um, Paul says true wisdom has eternal consequences. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. And then a little bit later on uh, in, in, in Luke, excuse me, like from last week, I, I preached and, and uh, it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The reason I'm doing this is because in the Old Testament, wisdom is personified. It's talked about as a person. And that's what Solomon does in two poems that he puts forth together in, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 20 through, through 33, and then Proverbs 8 and 9 are two poems that, Paul, or that, that, that Solomon has written about wisdom. But it creates a little bit of an issue because if you start to look at the poems, and I'll, let me just pull up one, um, See if you can hear the problem, if wisdom is personified. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. Oh. And in both of these poems, wisdom is talked about as female. Um, Of course, now what do you think modern theologians have done with that? Okay. Um, uh, God, uh, it's, it's, uh, ultimately, we're going to see that Jesus is is um, uh, uh, is, is wisdom, and so this is this is Jesus' feminine side. No. 
about nine years ago, ten years ago, we bought a we bought a um, we bought a Jetta for for Margaret, and um, it was a diesel Jetta, and we pulled it into the garage, and uh, uh, um, Carl, our son. Um, comes into the garage and we say, Carl, get Margaret got a new car. It's a diesel. It's a Jetta. And I said, just get in it. And he said, I'm not getting in it. Said, well, why not? Jetta, Jettas are chick cars. Okay, it's a chick car. I'm not, I'm not getting in a chick car. I'm not going to sit in the driver's seat of a chick car. All right. So get in the car. So he sits down in the driver's seat and says, Carl, start the engine. So he starts the engine, and you know, a diesel. And it's in the garage, and it's just shaking everything in the garage. And he gets this big smile on his face. He said, well, I guess I should get in touch with my feminine side. <laughs> this is not the feminine side of Jesus here. Um, uh, what... what uh, what some modern theologians have done with this is it's uh, Solomon is using this and it's, it's remnant of goddess worship or something like that. But in reality, um, uh, wisdom is not a goddess or a consort for, for Yahweh, similar to uh, Asherah was the consort to Baal. Okay, the female uh, uh, entity, the female god, and Baal, the male god. The better explanation of that is that in most languages, like Hebrew, uh, certain words are categorized, certain nouns are categorized as feminine or masculine. Um, now, English doesn't, doesn't do that. Um, is a house, you know, in English, is a house feminine or masculine? You know, um, we, we don't talk that way. Now, in Greek, it's feminine. Um, and so you have to ask, is a boat? Feminine or masculine, and you know, viewing the rigging, I think she's probably feminine. But um, the Hebrew word for wisdom is grammatically feminine. But when when Solomon breaks away from this female imagery, when he starts using it in the first first person address, when wisdom starts talking, wisdom becomes masculine. Um, uh, wisdom is the Lord's master workman. So from Proverbs 8, uh, 20, 27, uh, he's been using this feminine uh, reference to wisdom. And then when Proverbs 8, 27, he sa- Solomon writes, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the sky above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Of course, who was there, and by whom did the Father create all things? Well, we look at Genesis chapter 1, and... We realize in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And to speak, you use words. And so the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word, who in the end is made flesh and dwells among us full of grace and truth. This this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, our Lord. So wisdom in the Old Testament, though it's often personified in the feminine, when it's when it's when it speaks in its first person, it is male, 
and it's and it's our Lord Jesus Christ. So to possess wisdom in the Old Testament, or at least wisdom of any value or, or eternal value in a way, is to possess the gift of eternal life and salvation, is to possess, uh, in, in, in the right sense of the word, to possess the Savior. Now, when we're talking about wisdom, we're not talking about you know, how the world works mechanically, you know, pitting uh, the wisdom of the world, like, um, you know, mathematics uh, against um, spiritual things or something like that. It was, it was Thomas Kepler, I believe, who said science is thinking God's thoughts after him. In talking about wisdom here, uh, to make sense of the world, to make best sense of the world uh, is to understand it in the light of the one who created it. In other words, to see it all, to look at the world through your understanding of Christ, through Christology. And so for Paul, um, spiritual wisdom is not some sort of secret knowledge. First off, it's to know Christ. He's the personification of wisdom. It's to properly apply your faith in in various situations. Um, uh, In other words, what you know about the faith affects how you think about things. So when we think about death as Christians and we think about death uh, with, with Christ in mind, yes, it's a terrible thing, absolutely, but it's also that gate to everlasting life. You have Christ's word on that. Or the bad economy, for instance, terrible as it is, um, the Lord is there to sustain you. He is our good shepherd who sees us through all of it. I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus. We just sang. Um, and when it gets bad enough, terrible poverty, perhaps then even through that terrible poverty, he takes us home to that heavenly banquet table that knows absolutely no end, the finest of meats and the choicest of wines. Um, so spiritual wisdom is to know Christ. It's to look at the world through Christ. Um, it's the ability to to evaluate spiritual matters and to reject what's false and to cling to that which is true and to use the word of God to do that, rightly dividing the the word of truth, rightly dividing the law and the gospel. And then, of course, Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then in verse 10, um, Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, to walk, of course, can simply mean to take a stroll, but that's not what he's talking about here. It has that spiritual component. In Genesis, um, God tells Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So Paul's encouraging the Colossians to walk worthy. The Greek word there is is axios, or worthy, or, or suitable. Um, we get the word axiomatic from that. Ta- like it's taken for granted. It goes without saying. We get that kind of that kind of understanding from from to walk worthy, to walk in a manner that is suitable to your new life in Christ. Just goes without saying. It's axiomatic. It just naturally flows from the faith in one. It goes without saying. But the one with true faith in Christ is moved by faith to live a God-pleasing life, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me just read a little uh, piece from Luther. Um, You've probably heard the, the last section before. Luther writes, Faith, however, is a divine work in us. 
which changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes us, makes us all together a new man, a different man, in heart and in spirit and mind and powers, and it brings with it the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. In other words, it goes without saying that good works axiomatically, just naturally flow from faith. So walking in a manner worthy of of the Lord isn't talking about an attribute that we somehow do so that we might be counted worthy someday. That's a very self-centered way of thinking about it. Now, um, in the commentary that, uh, that uh, goes along with Colossians, the uh, Paul Dietering's commentary from Concordia, he writes, We are worthy when wisdom is appropriated through faith. Such fear moves and empowers one to live a life of wisdom. A life of wisdom will be characterized by good works. The purpose of being filled with this wisdom is that one live in a manner worthy of the Lord, well-pleasing to him, and increasing in every good work. The next, so it's, it's, it's God's work. Um, and the next phrase comes up, um, bearing fruit, Paul says. Um, Jesus often talks about bearing fruit. Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, just naturally results in the bearing of fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So godly living is nothing more than a natural outcome of faith in Christ. It's our response to God's grace. God's grace is not a response to our godly living. And as we've gotten to the right point here, and then, then, he, then he's going to be gracious to us. No, he's been gracious to us, and it's our response is, 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 the, is godly living. And when good works are an outgrowth of faith, which, are, which is given to us, it's not even our godly living and good works that, that are, they're not even ours. They're, they're works of God in us. They're born of faith. Jesus, Jesus said so much. Um, first, Jesus talks about who works faith. Do you work faith in yourself? Or does God work faith in you? Where does faith come from? And through the mouth of Paul, Jesus, Jesus, or, uh, Jesus uh, I'm sorry, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe is the work of God in you. All right? And then through the mouth of Paul, Jesus says from Ephesians chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand. God created the good works that we do. They're his works that he does through our hands, through our feet, through our mouths, that we should walk in them. It's all his. Um, So good works are just a natural outgrowth of being grafted to Christ. And if you think about it, the Christian life that Paul prays for here looks a lot like Christians living out their daily vocation as Christian. As opposed to to really serve God, what you need to do is join the choir. To really serve God, you need to volunteer here one day a week at church. What that does is it creates, it puts puts, um, whoever makes those rules, puts them in power. No, to really do good works is to do the works that God has given you to do in your vocation. If you're a mother, be a good mother. If you're a teacher, be a good teacher. If you're a a good um, server at at tables, be a good table server. If you're a a pastor, be a good pastor. Um, Live out your vocation because it's God doing his work through your hands, through you. Luther would even go that far as to a mother giving birth to to children is doing good works. And so we uh, keep uh, Beth Ann Van Voorhees in our prayers this morning as she does the good work of God by bringing another child into the world. The next word that Paul uses is the word he mentions power. Um, It's the same word that he used in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 for power. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. The word power there is dunamis. Um, We get the word dynamite from that. Uh, The gospel is dynamic. And what he'd be inferring there is that the wisdom and the knowledge and everything else that those false teachers are, are teaching is not dunamis. It's not powerful. It's not dynamic. It's the word of God that's dynamic. May you be strengthened with all power, verse 11, according to his glorious might. And glorious might is only used of God in Scripture. For all endurance and patience with joy. For all endurance, you know, enduring, holding fast to, to, the, to the hope that we have in Christ. And he talked about hope, how hopeless the world was, that time was just this sick, circular thing, and there was no beginning and there was no end to it. And it's the, the gift of of, of uh, of, of, of God through scripture that says time has a beginning and time has an end. It's going someplace. There's something for you to look forward to. The Old Testament being able, the Jews being able to, and the, Israel, the Hebrews being able to look forward to the Messiah coming and us looking forward to the Messiah coming again. Um, so time is going somewhere. So there's hope and endurance in the sense of persisting in all good works with patience. You know, enduring even in the face of trials. And Paul would put endurance and patience together very often. From Romans chapter 8, he writes, But if we hope for what we see, we wait for patience. And in Romans 2, he says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So he talks about endurance and patience, and he ties those together Endurance and patience, and you expect that with bravery. You know, got to endure and be patient in bravery. And he, he doesn't use that word. 
uses the word joy. You wouldn't expect joy to come there, except he uses joy because of the next few verses when he talks about what we have been qualified for. Okay, we're going to pause right there and we're going to pay some bills here. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, that's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well. Um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong, but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't teaching God's Word, engaging in narcissists, or just completely avoiding the biblical gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our famous yellow buttons. Click on one of them and support us. The uh, Donate button allows you to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. The Join Our Crew button allows you to sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, and there are perks from time to time for our crew members. In fact, sometime during this month, the month of September, we will be sending out our, our latest ebook, uh, which is a repristination of a work put out by uh, Martin Luther on really about teaching only the Bible in church. In, in, <laughs> it's a great book. And uh, those of you who are crew members, uh, be looking in your email. You'll be getting uh, 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 the download links sometime in the month of September. All right, now with that, we're going to continue with our uh, lecture on the uh, book of Colossians by the Reverend Ron Hodel. Here we go. From 12, um, 12 through 14, um, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance 
of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you. Sin has disqualified all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace through faith. Um, it's disqualified everyone, young, old, doesn't matter, uh, uh, male, female, every race, every nation has been disqualified. And the thing that allows for joy is the fact that Christ's redemption has changed things for us. His redemption has qualified us to to something eternal, to an inheritance. So God, with his undeserved love for sinners, qualifies us. And it's God who's the one who does all of the doing. Um, God is the one who does all all of the verbs. Always think about who's doing the doing. When you look through the scriptures, think about who is doing the doing here. And um, in the things of salvation, it's always God. It's not us. Um, Here, uh, God is the one who does the verbs. He reaches out through the gospel. He rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and death. He brings us into the kingdom of Jesus, his son. And that whole section in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that he, uh, he washes us in the waters of baptism. He presents us to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He is the one who is doing all of that. He gives himself us as a gift. So he's qualified us for an inheritance. And although Paul, or Paul here is writing to the Colossians who are, are, are Greeks, most, uh, most of them, and not Hebrews. When you, when you think about inheritance, you automatically also think about the Hebrews and how they received the promised land as an inheritance. And that promised land was allotted to the, to the families of Israel. There's that great big boring section in Joshua, and I shouldn't say that about the Lord's word, but um, it, 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 what it does is it, it lines out all of the boundaries that each of the tribes were going to get. And you're reading this and your, your mind is going, oh man, I, you know, can we just like skip a few chapters till we get through where all these boundaries are? Um, but you know what? If he was writing to us, if we were them, and, and we're, the, we're the children of Israel here, only we've landed in California, he says, uh, to the Shram family, Yours is from the great Pacific Ocean, due east along the Colorado River, north to Lake Mead, and then up to Mammoth Lakes, and then west to the, to the, to the uh, San Francisco Bay. That, 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 that got your attention. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're immediately thinking about, okay, this is where it's all at. Well, they would have known where this was all at. They would know what's there, all right? And uh, some of the tribes got a whole lot of land. A whole lot of land, much more than some of the other tribes. But then that whole lot of land, there wasn't much developed on it. Some of the tribes got just very small sections of land, but they were full of cities that were already built. So kind of an equality there, if you will. Um, 
the land was theirs according to God's promise and not because of anything they had done. When Moses writes to the children of Israel, he writes in Deuteronomy chapter 9, he says, not because of your righteousness or uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The land was theirs because of God's promises and not because of anything they had done to deserve it. Well, in the same way here, um, this inheritance is not something we have earned. It's not something we have des- been, we, we've deserved. It's not even something that he gives to us in view of the fact that, well, he's going to save us and then we're going to live these wonderful, wonderful lives. And so in view of the fact that, you're, that I know you're going to clean up your life, I'm going to save you and give you the inheritance. No, he gives us it all ahead of time. It's all ours um, as pure gift. Um, and so in the same way that a child does nothing to partake in the inheritance of a family and to enjoy its blessings, to enjoy its, its wealth, we do nothing to, to, to gain a place in the Lord's family. We simply receive its blessings um, to receive the kingdom of God as a gift. Um, and of course, it's a better inheritance than, than the children of Israel had. And so... It's God who's the one who declares us worthy of receiving it. It's not something we've done. It's, inherit, it's an inheritance that has uh, we've been qualified for. Um, it's for the saints in light. Once the Colossians were in darkness, they were in death, they were in sin. Um, now through Christ's redemption, they're no longer separated from God, who is light, um, Now, just as the saints in eternity enjoy their inheritance, we're qualified for the same. And it's an inheritance that is ours even now. It's not ours just, you know, after the day we die, then we we get it. It's ours even now, the joys of heaven. We can, we can say, I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, and I can serve knowing that he's, that the kingdom is already mine. Which, which puts you into a position of, of, of great freedom. But you don't have to protect things until the day you die and then you get the kingdom or something like that. But it's yours even now. Paul describes God's holiness as dwelling in unapproachable light. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to Timothy, who, uh, God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So God is, God's holiness dwells in unapproachable light. In contrast to the devil and his hosts, who are the rulers of this, of this present darkness. Uh, one of the, um, we're, we're looking at uh, Leviticus in um, during the week, in the midweek uh, Bible study. And the important thing in Leviticus is God's holiness. God is holy. And, and we cannot make ourselves holy. There is nothing we can do to even approach uh, God in His holiness. We are unholy, and we need to be declared holy in, in 
by, by God who is holy before we can come into his presence. So the children of Israel had to go through the, the sacrificial um, rites that, that God uh, provides in Leviticus so that by doing those, God takes the common and the ordinary and he declares them holy and then they can come into his presence and receive his gifts. Right? So the same, if you think about it, the same thing is true for us in divine service. We're, we're unholy people. And we have no right to simply waltz in to the, to the temple, to the tabernacle, to waltz in and think that we're on equal footing with the God who has promised to meet his people there. So we come in immediately in divine service on our knees. It'd be nice if we had kneelers. Um, I think we ran out of money before we could do that. But, but to be on our knees confessing our sins, our unworthiness. The church, you know, people talk about the church, and if you'd ask people, talk long enough about church, they would say, well, the church uh, talks about sin, and they're against it. And, uh, um, you know, it's, and, and, and there's this whole conversation about sin, but the problem with sin is, is sin makes us unholy. And being unholy, we cannot come into the presence of the holy. That's that's what it's about, coming into the presence of the holy to receive his gifts. And so God declares us to be holy. He himself is the sacrifice who atones for our sins, who washes our sins away. He declares us to be holy. And then we can come into his presence and receive his gifts in word and sacrament. Um, so Paul is talking a little bit about this here when he talks about God being being unapproachable light, uh, who is holy, and the only way you can come into that into that holiness is to be declared holy by God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself holy. Um, same with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. So it follows then that uh, those who are in the light put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light or uh, to put aside the fruitless works of darkness and to put on or bring forth the fruit of light. And so Paul begins to, to close his prayer here and he highlights the thing that Christians have to be most thankful for. Thankful that God has qualified us. And that's a great blessing, that he has qualified you. If you tried to qualify yourself, even if you think you did a pretty good job of it, It'd always be a question of whether you qualified yourself enough. Did you did you meet all the qualifications? You know? And then there'd probably have to be a meeting with the academic dean right there close to the end, and the academic dean goes through your transcripts of qualifications and oop, you missed underwater basket weaving. I'm sorry you can't graduate this year. You know? You haven't been qualified yet. Oh, and you you're constantly wondering, have I done enough? But if he's the one who has qualified you, and he's the almighty eternal God, then you don't have to wonder whether it was qualification enough. He did it. He does all things well. And so it's perfect for you. So God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light 
He's qualified us for heaven. And he has delivered us, Paul says. Used to be in ancient, in ancient kingdoms, uh, people that were conquered uh, were often transplanted from their homeland to unfamiliar foreign lands uh, where they would become slaves. That was the Assyrian practice, by the way, and that's where the, where the uh, Samaritan race ends up coming from. The Assyrians, when they would come in um, and, and conquer a, a nation, what they would do is they would take people out of that nation um, to other nations. And um, they didn't just say, come here, would you come? Uh, we're going to take you and you and you and you and you and follow us here because we're going to take you to another nation. No, because people just don't behave well like that. And so they had this, this, this what they do is they'd tie your hands behind your back and then they'd take a fish hook and they'd put it through your nose. Okay? And then they'd tie that fish hook to a long string. And we have this long string with all these fish hooks tied to it. I say, Come! <laughs> And you follow wherever they lead you. That was the Assyrian way, taking people out of their homeland to another land. And then, of course, bringing other people into that land and mixing everybody genetically so that there is no national pride or anything like that. And so that's how the, that's how the, the Samaritans came to be, that Samaritan race. Jews mixed with, with uh, people from other nations. When it comes to us, the exact opposite is done by God. God delivers us. He transfers us. So when Paul uses those words, he uses, and uh, he, uh, let me just read that again here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Um. And when he uses the word delivered and transferred, it's already been accomplished. It's already done. Doesn't mean we're waiting until the day we die to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the domain of, the, of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was done for you in the waters of your baptism when, for many of you, you had no say in it at all. That's how you get born into a family, by the way. You had no say in it at all. Uh, your parents never asked you, would you like to be conceived? <laughs> would you like to be born? Child doesn't even, child at, 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 at 40 weeks, plus or minus, um, the child is told, you are being pushed out of here. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, it has no say in it at all. Um, were born and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, delivered from the kingdom of darkness. And it all happened back at your baptism when you had no say in it at all. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And Paul uses that contrast between light and darkness as a comparison between God and Satan. Um, Paul describes God's holiness as unapproachable light, and he contrasts God and the devil and his hosts uh, uh, with with the rulers. Uh, calls them the rulers of uh, of the the world rulers of this darkness. And he compares the conversion with God's creation of light, um, which the unbelievers do not see because the devil has blinded their their eyes. Um, 
he compares conversion to God's creation of light. God created out of nothing, ex nihilo. He created light out of nothing. Be light, and there was light. All right? He creates faith in you out of nothing. In other words, you don't contribute a lick to it. He works it in you. Um, just like he created light. And, and he says, those without saving faith are in darkness. Um, those with it are the light, are the, are, are light in the Lord. The light is more powerful than the darkness. It can deliver us. It can transfer us. And that's important to Paul because the, the, um, the Gnostics and the Manichaeans, um, who are all this, the, the, the Gnostic, uh, thought and the Manichaean thought is, is starting up at this point. And there, they have a dualism view that there, uh, and it was their, their way of trying to solve the problem of evil. Well, uh, what they would say is there are two opposing powers. Um, they're both equally powerful. You have the, you have, you have the power of good, you have God, and you have the power of evil. And, and it's, uh, and it's, um, a wrestling match. And they're even, they're, they're equal forces. All right. And you kind of have to wonder who's going to win this ultimate fight. All right. So the Manichaeans were, were very much that way. Um, Paul's not. Paul talks about, Light as more powerful than darkness. John, when he writes in his gospel, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I remember once, uh, maybe some of you have done this. You've been in a, in a cave. And uh, I think this, this, I remember this, we, we took the youth group up to, uh, to Minnesota to do a servant event. And there were these, there were these caves in this uh, area of Southern Minnesota and you go way back into the cave and then the guide gets everybody together in a safe place. And then the guide says, now we're going to turn off the lights and you turn off the lights and it is dark. There is no light coming in from anywhere. It is pure, utter darkness. Um, and then, uh, he just lit a match one little, after our eyes had adjusted and we just, you could not see a thing. He lit one match and it illuminates the darkness. And that powerful darkness has no power over that one little match. It's an amazing thing to see, you know, with your eyes here, Jesus says, or John says, uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or from Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So light and darkness for Paul are not equal powers and we're wondering until the end who's going to win. God saves us from the power of darkness. He overpowers the evil one and his glorious might breaches the darkness and it rescues us. It floods the darkness with light. And God does this by Christ's cross work. It's by the cross that he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom. And uh, I'm going to just put a plug in here um, for our Faith Academy that's coming up uh, in, in August. It's the second week in, in August. 
um, and uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, who uh, is a professor at uh, uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, who is working, who has written the commentary, the Concordia commentary on Matthew, is coming out uh, to give us a talk, like Dr. Lessing did last last uh, last August or last July. On on uh, uh, he's going to talk about Matthew, and this is what uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Gibbs said. Okay, this is his little plug. The King is here, Jesus and the reign of God in the Gospel of Matthew. If someone asks you to tell them what Jesus Christ is all about in the Gospel of Matthew, what would you say? There is a clear and important answer, and one that American Christians need to understand and reclaim in our day. The answer is this. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has broken into the world. But what is the kingdom of heaven? And what difference does it make for our faith now and for our hope for the future? And Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs from Concordia Seminary will be teaching on the Gospel of Matthew and these important truths. And that's going to come up uh, uh, August the 13th through the 17th from 6 p.m. until 9 p.m. During, during the week, and then he'll have Bible class and preach on, on the Sunday following. From Dr. Van Voorhees, baby on his way, should be out within the hour. <laughs> keep us in your prayers and I'll keep you updated. <laughs> So Christ in whom we have redemption, we've been bought back. Uh, once we were slaves, now we've been set free. I'm going to go ahead and end there. I know ladies are having to get their things ready for the tea and the Sunday school kids are, are getting ready to, to get out. And so I'm going to take a break right here and we'll pick up here next week. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Amen. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.